Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. You know, I think that the truest test of a person's character is what they do when no one is watching. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. That clip was from our guest this week, Deborah Seafeld in Houston, Texas. Deborah practices accounting with her husband there in Houston. They've had their firm about 11 years now. He's a tax guy, and Deborah leads the audit and peer review side of their practice. I tried to highlight all the different career options there are for accountants, so I figured Deborah would make a great guest because, as you'll hear, she became a CPA a little later in life, and she's incorporated peer review into their practice as one of their specialties. Actually, you'll hear it in the interview, but she's also quite involved in peer review in that she's been serving on that specific committee within TSCPA at the state level as well. This episode covers much more than just peer review, though. We get into how they built their practice and, of course, how she became an accountant in the first place. Like I said, it wasn't quite the traditional route that everyone typically thinks of. Here we go with Deborah Seafeld of Seafeld & Company in Houston, Texas. Well, good afternoon, Deborah. Thank you for taking the time to schedule this. I've really been looking forward to having you on the show. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm looking forward to spending some time with you this afternoon as well. Wonderful. Well, I wanted to invite you on the podcast because I like to have individuals really from all across the state as well as from different specialties. And I've only had a few from Houston, and I'm pretty sure you're the first person that we've had on the podcast that encompasses peer review into their practice. So I figured that would be sort of a nice twist, a nice new discussion area for us. The podcast is about highlighting individuals' careers and how they've progressed those. So I want to start with that. How did you end up deciding to become an accountant in the first place? What sort of led you to that decision or that point? Well, Mark, I was for, let's see, close to 10 years, I worked actually under a CPA. I was in industry in an oil and gas company, and my supervisor was the CPA, And I was amazed, no matter what work I did, he could always spot the error. (laughs) It could be be 99% right, and he could look at it and find the 1% that was wrong. And I was amazed. (laughs) And, you know, he he went to this, this thing called continuing education, and, you know, he met with interesting people, and I really looked up to him. So I decided, well, you know, I think I want to be a CPA. Now, I had no college. And again, had, had done this work in industry. So I contacted the state board. And again, this is in the mid-1990s. 
And I contacted the Texas State Board of Public Accountancy and I said, I would like to take the CPA exam. What do I need to do? And they said, well, let us send you a brochure and it will outline the educational requirements and the work experience requirements. And so, you know, I waited for it in the mail. And then when I got this brochure, I thought, what do you mean I have to have a college degree? (laughs) (laughs) So I was very naive. I didn't even know you had to have a college degree to sit for the exam. Wow. I was married at the time. I had uh, my children were two and six. And again, here I was working and with a two-year-old and a six-year-old. And I thought, you know, how am I going to do this? And so I enrolled at Sam Houston State University and started my studies at that time. So it took me, this was before, you know, they changed the requirements. This was when it was like the 128-hour rule for education and an accounting degree. And so I started at that time and it took me uh, five years to get my, you know, four-year degree. But I I graduated magna cum laude and immediately started in public accounting and sitting for the CPA exam. Wow. Did you work during that time going to school as well? No, I actually quit work. And again, there's challenges in that, you know, when you're in a a household with two people working. But I knew that it was going to be impossible to work with with the small children and go to school. So I made the decision to leave accounting. And again, I was working still in industry. And again, it took me five years, but I graduated with 128 hours. Wow. Congratulations. I bet that was a hard choice to make because you quit, quit work, you go to school, you, you have more time but less money. Yes. <laughs> and with the family obligations, yeah. That you must have had a very supportive spouse. Yes. That is a blessing. And I very much enjoyed school, you know, so it, it was definitely, it wasn't going to ever get any easier. You know, and at the time, actually, when I took my first college class and enrolled, I was 30 years old. And, you know, when you're 30, a lot of times you feel really old when you're, <laughs> when you're in college. And now I'm much older. I realized 30 was actually very young. <laughs> so you went into public accounting. Did you start in tax or audit or something different? Or? Well, I graduated December of 95 and started in public accounting immediately after January of 1996, and I started in audit as audit staff. Okay. Actually, when I was, I was 35 again when I graduated from college, and, you know, I had been told by people at the university that I wouldn't get a job offer from any of the big firms because I was too old, which now I think is really funny. You know, you think of 35 and realize that's not old at all. And I had an an offer to go with one of the big four, and I had another offer to go with the local firm. Very tough decision, but at 35, I really wanted to learn public accounting. And so I decided the best way to do that was to get with a local firm where I could learn a lot about the business and the ramp up time would be much less. So I, I joined a firm that had been in our community since the early 1960s. They were a large local firm, had two offices, about 25 professionals. And again, I started as audit staff. Okay. Yeah, I'm curious. Did you feel like the, because obviously some people would make the opposite choice. So did you feel like you get more well-rounded experience, maybe more variety, or was it a travel issue? Or what, what put the local firm ahead in your mind at that time? 
Well, well, I actually uh, talked with a lot of people, and I reached out to a couple of my college professors about, you know, that I had these interviews and had to be making a decision, like within a week. One of them actually had put me in touch with someone who had been a partner in the local firm that I was considering. And so, you know, that was a great way of connecting me with somebody that had actually been at the partner level at this local firm. I was able to visit with her, was able to visit with some people that were at the big four, you know, through connections. And really, I looked at it and I decided that I wanted to learn the business of public accounting. I didn't want to just learn how to audit, particularly how to audit within a specific industry. The travel played into it a little bit, but not so much. You know, they said that they would try to keep me local, you know, every bit that they could. But it really was more about wanting to learn the business of public accounting and not just, for example, being an auditor of employee benefit plans. Okay. Okay. I'm curious back then, did you feel like eventually you might want to start your own firm or something along those lines and that's why you wanted to learn the business of it or or had that not occurred to you yet? Uh, You know, it had not occurred to me. But actually, by the time I finished my first year, and and mind you, I was audit staff. So at the end of the first year at my review, I told the partner that I worked for that I was going to be a partner there in that firm. So I knew within a year, it was public accounting and that local firm, that feel of the way the business is, was very much what I aspired to do. But that wasn't the intent really until I actually started working, you know, because I didn't even really understand what auditing was. You think you do when you take your auditing class, but I'd had one auditing class. But after a year and watching how the firm worked and the clients get service, I knew within a year that this is what, that I had made the right decision. Okay. So how'd your career progress from there? Well, sometimes plans change. Um, (laughs) You know, I, I had been with that firm, that local firm that I started with. I had been with them for 12 years. And actually, I made manager at year three and had been working an incredible amount of hours to try to get to that opportunity. Our manager left, actually, to go with one of the big firms. And I was promoted at that time from senior, and I had just been a senior about a little over a year, but really wanted the opportunity. And I, I was older, but I think also the time that I had spent in industry before I ever went back to school really helped a lot because I understood business and I understood accounting. I could keep a set of books. And a lot of times staff gets out of school and they start an auditor tax and they actually have a hard time making journal entries or trying to understand what happened in the real world and how that translates into the accounting entries and how it affects the financial statements and the tax return. So I promoted quickly there at that firm. And again, I was with the firm 12 years. But right at the 11th year of being there, I had, I had gotten divorced and I remarried. And when I remarried, my husband, who is now my business partner, was with a large CPA firm in Dallas, over 100 professionals. Hmm. So when we married, he came down here, of course. And then, you know, I had a decision to make. Was I going to stay at the firm I was with? He was going to open an office and basically be a sole practitioner. He's got a tax background. Hmm. And so we just saw it as a real opportunity. And again, now you fast forward, you can do the math. I'm getting quite a bit older. And then this was, you know, this was a time that 
it was a real opportunity for us to be able to work together and bring our talents together to serve our clients and, and the community. So that was really what, what changed the course of action was, was him coming down here and starting his practice. Okay. And when, when was that approximately? Well, uh, we started a firm in 2006. It was called Seafeld and Company. And then immediately the next year, in 2007, we acquired a practice, which often happens when someone starts their own practice. We acquired a a sole practitioner's practice at that time in 2007. So actually, July 1st of this year was our 10-year firm anniversary. Wow. Congratulations. Yes. 10 years. It's probably going to go okay. That's good. Yes, (laughs) it is going to go okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, when you start a firm and you have zero clients and you're doing quite well 10 years later, <laughs> a, lot, a lot's happened along the way. That is good. That is good. I, I'm going to digress a little bit, but I'm curious because we've had a couple guests on the show that acquired practices as well and actually a couple that merged. Did you use a broker when you acquired that practice? No, we did not use a broker. We no. did not use a broker. Okay. We actually had the the situation where in again we contact we started our practice in the fall of 2006 and we learned of this practice that was going to be for sale and we met with the owner of the firm it was again a sole practitioner and she was really in over her head her business had really grown and she was in a bind for her busy season for 2007. Hmm. And so what we actually did was we did some work with her for about three months, maybe four months during busy season of 2007 to get to know her staff, to get to know her, to learn about her clients. And this was the intent that if basically this due diligence that we were able to do along with helping her through this busy time of the year to get, get the work out the door, and quality work, again, we're able to supervise the staff, meet with the client. You know, of course, with her, she was still very involved in the practice. And then once we got through that busy season, we realized it was a fit. She felt very comfortable with us and the way we dealt with the staff and the clients. She was able to see technically where we were. And we were, again, able to kind of learn about her practice and see if it looked like a smart thing to do. And then we just negotiated the terms, of course, using an attorney. Okay. Okay. Any advice to, to give people that are considering acquiring a practice? Any, anything you learned through that process that you'd like to pass on? I would say get a broker. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because I think the situation we had was very unique. We were actually able to see the file because we were doing work with her. But that's a very unusual situation. And I think without... It would be difficult to value the practice and get all the terms right and all unless you were able to really spend a lot of time, I believe, with the firm. So my advice would be to get a broker. I think our situation is very unique. Okay. Well, I know a couple brokers that would love that answer. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wouldn't sell my own house either, you know. I'd sure. use a real estate broker, but I think it's very much the same thing because you, you want to get the most you can for your practice. And, you know, if it's out on the market, you've got more people competing than one firm or one individual trying to buy you out. Okay. Well, tell us about your firm now. What are your specialties or what type of work do you typically do, the makeup of the firm, that kind of thing? 
tell us about Stephen. Well, on as far as the industries we serve, when when I'd been in public accounting twelve years before Mike and I started the business here, I had worked primarily with governmentals and nonprofits on the audit side. And of course, all different variations. You know, the nonprofits could have been single audits, government auditing standards, it could have been credit unions just a wide variety of tax-exempt organizations, yellow book engagements. And when we started the firm, I made the decision and said I didn't want to do the work with the governmentals. I would do the government auditing standards work for the nonprofits, but I did not want to deal with the cities, the counties, the school districts, and my districts. And again, that was an area of specialization that I left after having done that work for 12 years. And, you know, made an intentional decision that we were going to serve the nonprofit sector. Basically, when we started the firm and we had no clients, said, you know, as we designed the firm, what it was going to look like, who we were going to serve, it's like we can pick and choose. And I decided I wanted the focus to be on nonprofits and, and because of the work that our nonprofits do in our community in the whole greater Houston area. Wonderful, wonderful missions going on by all of these organizations helping those in need. So that has been our focus since we started. I'm not doing any governmental work unless it's, again, government auditing standards work that falls under the nonprofit sector. Okay. Our tax practice is very, I would call, traditional. But again, I'm not a tax person, so that might not even be the best way of describing it, but a very general practice, primarily business returns and, of course, individual returns all always. Okay, wonderful. And then you touched earlier about peer reviews. I also do, I also serve as a peer reviewer. So we have a client segment for the peer review as well. Okay. You know, that, that is an interesting area or an interesting topic. I guess what, what caused you to decide to include that in your practice? What led you to that? Because obviously most firms don't handle peer review. Right. So what, right. Yeah, what, what led you to that decision? When I had hit my five-year mark in public accounting and was a manager, I started serving as a team member under the partner that I worked for on system reviews. And a system review is a, is a type of peer review for any firms that issue, let's say, audit engagements. They're going to have to have what's called a system review, which is almost like an audit. Mm-hmm. And so in these types of engagements, the partner will serve as what they call the team captain, and then they will add team members as needed. It's almost like if you had audit staff and you had an audit partner and you had audit staff working on engagement, it's very similar. So you have a team captain, your partner heading up this system peer review, and then you add team members as needed. So I had served about seven years as a team member on peer reviews before we started the firm here in 2006. And I really like the work I did in that area because you basically get to see how other firms work. And, you know, I I said early on that that was part of my interest was the actual business of a CPA practice, not just the technical work. So in a peer review, you see how people hire, you see how people administer continuing professional education, whether they do self-study or they go to conferences, you get to interview the staff. So it's really, the peer review is really interesting work. Plus, I got to see their work papers. So it always, anytime you can look at someone else's work papers, you can always look at ways you can improve in your quality, Uh, maybe get a tip for the way a certain work paper was done that's uh, more efficient. 
than the way maybe you have approached it in the past. So you really learn a lot of best practices. And then in return, you can share with the firm about best practices for them as well. So in looking at work papers, if you see redundancy or inefficiencies in the documentation during the engagement, you can just give them feedback in that area, what you've seen in similar situations, maybe how the documentation was done differently. And it really helps firms then improve their practice as well. Okay. Okay. I'm curious, how much of your time, hey, ballpark, is dedicated to peer review type work now? It kind of encompasses a lot of kind of different facets, Mark. For example, I serve on the Texas Society of CPAs Peer Review Committee, mm-hmm. which has, you know, three face-to-face meetings a year, plus we have conference calls throughout the year uh, for that work. The last two years, I served on the AICPA Peer Review Board and served as chair of the Oversight Task Force that administers the program across the United States. And then plus, I perform peer reviews in the firm. And then additionally, I have continuing education requirements for peer review that go above and beyond. So in a light year, you know, when it's not so much volunteer work or training going on, it's easily easily 120, 150 hours a year in a light year. Okay. How many peer reviews do you complete a year or do you work on in a year? It really depends because the peer review process cycles. It's an every three-year process, as you probably know. And so, you know, the client base, the nice thing is, you know, in tax work, you get that workload compression where everybody wants their tax returns done, you know, the first three, four months of the year. And fortunately, on peer reviews, they have different year-end cycles, and then they alternate like every three years. But, you know, I would say that probably, and I'd have to go back and look, I've done probably approximately 100 peer reviews. Oh, wow. Okay. And again, these are, these are cycling like every three years. Okay. But it's very interesting work. One of the reasons also that's a big benefit for us is the peer review work is all about focusing on a firm system of quality control. So we're constantly keeping our head into the changes in the quality control standards and the peer review standards, not just what what FASB is doing, the auditing standards, but again, it's a whole different set of standards for quality control and then the peer review standards. So it helps us just stay on top of it daily with quality control uh, within our own firm. Okay, okay. What what challenges do you see coming down the pike for peer review, or, or what do you feel like some of the changes may be in that process over the next three, four, five years? Well, we've had a lot of challenges the past several years that the AICPA has really focused on and the time and dollars they're putting forth with their initiatives to enhance audit quality. And a lot of this has to do with the DOL, uh, the Department of Labor has really focused on the audits that are being issued on employee benefit plans and deficiencies that have been noted during those audit work papers being reviewed. And then on the governmental side, we have a new study that's going to be coming out by the GAO. And so the AICPA is trying to stay ahead of the curve in all areas of enhancing audit quality, but particularly as relates to employee benefit plans and single audits, uh, government auditing standards or the uniform guidance. And so 
this is a big challenge. Everybody seems to be kind of pointing the finger at someone else. You know, certainly the government is looking to the AICPA to enhance the program because we are charged with self-monitoring in our profession. So basically the tone is if you're going to self-monitor, you need to be catching these deficiencies and showing improvement. Things are coming, the needle's moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And uh, the AICPA has had a program that they've hired actually subject matter experts to perform reviews of the work papers and the peer reviews that are being performed before they're accepted by the state through the peer review process. And they're finding the same deficiencies, similar deficiencies that the DOL is. So we very much in our profession know that we've got some problems that need to be addressed. The ASCPA has come out with a six-point plan. You can go to the ASCPA's website if you're interested and take a look at that. But it even starts with pre-licensure. It's not just from the peer review standpoint itself, but really approaching enhancing audit qualities from all different areas. So we have a lot of challenges. There are peer reviewers that have decided they don't want to do peer reviews anymore. There's just too much heat right now, too much scrutiny on being second-guessed on everything that's done. So I'm hoping that the resources the AICPA has put towards enhancing audit quality, that we will see that, again, that the needle starts moving in the right direction and that they see the quality of the audits improve. Okay. Yeah, I know I've asked some relatively basic questions, but that's part of what makes this particular interview unique. Like I said, we haven't had anybody involved in that process before as as a guest on the show. And and I really think that this will be some good information for younger professionals that, you know, haven't been exposed to that or or maybe they are just being exposed to peer review to understand some of the background there. I guess one last question in that area. Do you have any idea of how many firms do peer review in in Texas or nationwide? I I do not know, Mark, on that. I do not know. The AICPA has a database for people that are interested, they can just actually go out to the AICPA's website and uh, under the tab interest areas, there's a tab called peer reviews. And on that tab, there's a section that says firm on firm and find a reviewer. And you can actually search the database. You can just type in Texas, put Texas in, or even your city. If you're interested to see in San Antonio, uh, someone in San Antonio and your area was looking for a peer review, they could just put that in there and it would populate everybody that is in the database. And then from that, the challenge is now you have to get a firm that has a match on your experience. A lot of times a firm will call me and they're looking for a peer reviewer and and I can't help them because maybe our firms don't match up with the same experience rating. Maybe they're doing this governmental work, which we're not, and now they need a firm that has governmental, governmental experience. I'll a lot of times get on the phone, you know, with them while they're on the call and we'll go out on the database and try to help them find a peer reviewer. And when you put their information in, you make it half a dozen maybe in Texas that populate. Oh, my god! So firms have very, very few firms to pick from. Hmm. And a lot of times there may be only one or two. Interesting. Interesting. And if the firm is having a system review, those reviews have to be done on site. So you generally are not going to want to get someone from out of state because then the firm has to pay for their airline and their hotel and their food, and it can get very expensive. Sure. Okay. Well, well, thank you for 
let me get into that area a little bit as well. I know it was a little bit of a tangent. I, I wanted to return a little bit to your own career, <laughs> so to speak, or outside of just that area. So you've been self-employed now or in a partnership, I guess, to me, how you look at it, for 11 years. What, what do you enjoy the most about having your own firm, being your own boss, that kind of thing? Well, primarily from surely professional standpoint, getting to pick and choose which clients we work with. Because the client acceptance process we make, we determine who we're going to work with. And if we get to a point in time with the client, we feel like that they're more well-suited elsewhere, or let's say on an audit, it's basically my decision whether to re-engage the client or not. And a lot of times, if you're not self-employed or if you're not in a firm where you have that ability to do that, you work on any client that the firm tells you to work on. So from the risk that we take on as being partners and self-employed, the benefit is, I think, really being able to determine which clients that we serve and who we're going to serve. And the fact that I don't want to audit school districts and cities and counties. Have there been any surprises along the way? Anything you would have done differently? Well, I think probably the biggest surprise professionally has been that I had not intended on being in a firm. You know, I had, I had planned on staying with that other firm. It was the, so that was probably from a surprise along the way would have been, I would not have planned on remarrying, marrying a man who has the master's in tax and then having her own firm. Yes, that was not in really in the plans. <laughs> Well, it seems to have worked out. So. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. He's a wonderful, he's not only a wonderful husband, he's a great business partner. <laughs> Knowing what you know now, if you were talking to somebody who had been with another firm for, you know, 10 or 11 years or, and, and was thinking about going out and starting their own practice, what, what piece of advice would you have for them? Have a lot of money in savings before you start. <laughs> Because you're either going to have no clients, (laughs) and so you're going to have no income, or you're going to acquire a practice, and the person you acquire the practice from is going to want payment. Ah. So whether you generate that income from that practice you acquire, you, you you don't really know as you go into it, if you've never been in business for yourself, how you're going to do, how the business is going to do. So, you know, it'd be the same advice I would say to someone who is going to start a restaurant. You know, be sure you can cash flow it. Okay. You know, we started out with a very small office for the first six months. And actually, our local chamber here has some beautiful executive offices. And we leased an office for six months, knowing that we were going to be acquiring a practice and have to get a large office. And so there's, you know, there's a lot of dollars that go out when you look at starting your own business. The library. Of course, everything is online now, but, you know, your library, your continuing education, your licensing, your insurance, not only health insurance, but, you know, professional liability insurance and workers' comp. And so there's a lot of dollars that certainly go out the door. So you've got to be really smart business-wise. Yes, that's good advice. Well, there's a few questions I end every podcast with, but there's one other thing I want to ask about before we got to that. I do want to be respectful of your time. I noticed on your website that you are the founding president of Executive Women's Alliance. Tell us a little bit about that. What's, what is that organization? What, what do they do exactly? Well, Executive Women's Alliance is, has really a twofold purpose. 
primarily women are first attracted to the organization because it is a, a networking a forum for executive women here in the Woodlands area, which is north of the Houston area. And we have a meeting once a month, and we bring a speaker in, and we wine and dine and spend time together. It's not like your typical, what you would think of a networking event. It's not like we go around the room and say our name and who we're with and what we do. It's a group of executive women that get together and have wine and dinner and a speaker and really just get to know each other. And that's the first fold. That's what attracts people originally to the organization. The second thing is we mentor at-risk high school girls. We have a program at the local high school that we coordinate with the administration there, primarily the counselors who we work with. And we have a monthly program, just like uh, Executive Women's has a monthly program for networking. We have a monthly program at the high school that runs throughout the school year. It's once a month. And the girls have to come after school to it, so they have to really be committed to this program. And basically, it's laid out where one month may be on helping them create a resume. One month may be on dress for success. Actually, one of the more popular events is we have a tea. Now, you would think in 2017, having high school girls attend a tea would not be a big deal. But we have it later in the year. We've been through etiquette. We've done a lot of things with them, and they love it. They dress up. It's a big deal. It's a typical tea. But we try to really serve as mentors for these girls that have been handpicked by the counselors. A lot of them already have children or they're pregnant in high school. These girls have to be willing to be committed to the program. They can't be starting fights at school. They can't have disciplinary problems to be selected to be in the program. So it's quite elite for the counselors to pick a girl that will be mentored. And again, we just try to serve as a role model. A lot of the young ladies, their moms or their sisters or their aunts, their grandmothers, did not weren't able to go on either educationally or professionally. And so they've never been around doctors and attorneys and CPAs. This is not anyone that they've really ever interacted with. They don't even know what different professionals do, whether it be bankers or, you know, just all different career options. And then we, you know, we work with them on, you know, if they want to go to cosmetology school, that's fantastic. We see what we can do to support them, but we try to give them options. And we award scholarships. They have certain criteria that they have to meet to get the scholarships, but we try to get them scholarships so at least they can get to a semester of college and get through so they kind of have a taste of it. Because again, a lot of times in their family, they never, mom, sister, aunt, never attended college. And a lot of the universities, of course, have childcare on campus. So if, if they have a baby, then that's, we're showing them how they can still get their education. So it's wonderful. It's a wonderful group of ladies. And the high school girls, again, they'll be in the program several years. They'll, they'll come in and then they'll move up the ladder each year. So if they came in as a sophomore, they requalify. They'll be as, as a junior and senior. So some of these girls we will have for several years. Wow. And, and many of them have gone on and attended universities. And we know that it's touching lives and making a difference. And we're hoping they tell their sisters and their friends at the high school. So the women come into Executive Women's Alliance for a nice glass of wine 
and to meet some other business women in the community, and then they realize the bigger cause of the organization. Interesting. That is a wonderful program. How, when, when did this start? How long has it been going on? Uh, 2007. Okay. How many schools are you? We're at one high school. One high school? Yeah, we're at one high school. And the reason is we keep about, depending on the year, our membership can be 35 to 40. Well, we tap our, our volunteers a lot. Yeah, we really tap our volunteers a lot. So we try not to burn them out too much. And they have wanted to talk about expanding into different campuses. But right now, we just really don't have the woman power to be able to make that happen. It would be stretched too thin. Sure. With the program we've got. But I've told over the last 10 years, I've told so many people about the organization because I tell them they can start this in their community if there's not something, you know, if there's not something similar. They can get their tax exempt status and start some kind of women's networking group. I talk to women all the time that really don't have a group like this at all. And then, you know, what a better way than to help, help the girls in the community as well. That's a neat program. Yeah, and I agree with you. It's better to do a great job at one school than try to expand yes. too much and, you know, not be able to deliver. So, wow, you're making a difference in the world. That's neat. That is neat. Well, <laughs> like I mentioned, sorry, I, I should have spent more time on that topic. That is, that is a great, that's a great program. Let's get to the, the final question. First of all, I always like to ask every guest, what's been your proudest moment? Uh, well, Mark, are you saying personally or professionally? <laughs> well, <laughs> professionally, because, although if, I think, because I happen to have two very fine children that are smart, kind, caring individuals in this world, you know, nothing makes us more proud than our, our children, except I don't know. We have grandchildren now. So, oh. you know, they're a close second to the kids. But, you know, family's always first when I think of, of that. But professionally... I don't know how many of these podcasts you've done. So I don't know how many times you've heard this, but really professionally was getting my CPA license. <laughs> yeah. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Anybody that listens to this podcast that is a CPA, if it's not one of their proudest moments, it's got to be right up there at the top. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, and, and you got it a little later in life. I think makes it even more special mm-hmm. uh, or more more appreciated sometimes. Well, congratulations. Yes, I understand. Actually, it hasn't come out as of the time we're recording this, but when this episode comes out, it'll be, I believe it's the previous episode or the one right before it. I interviewed Connie Clark out of Austin, and mm-hmm. uh, she said Connie. the exact same thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's just that, you know, it's just really hard. You just never forget that feeling. <laughs> When you actually get the license in the mail. And I tell you, Mark, my husband laughs because my birthday's in April. And in April, we're in busy season, right? But nothing makes me happier than when I go to my mailbox and really the state board still sends you that card, you know, that comes in the mail. And it's like, I have that license for another year. You know, because I think yeah. I think that as a new professional, if there's any students that listen to your podcast, they think I'm just going to get my license. No, you get your license and then you have to keep your license. Yes. You know, it's you only get license that year and you better not mess up or you may not have it all year. So mm-hmm. I don't take it for granted. And, you know, I've been practicing now 20 years and I'm just very thankful each and every year that I'm able to continue working in this profession. 
I know what you mean. I, I feel the same way. You know it's coming, but when you get it in the mail, you're, uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. okay, I'm good I, for another I year. feel better, Mark. I feel better. <laughs> that, sounded, that sounded really nerdy that I've been a CPA for 20 years and I love getting my license in the mail, but. <laughs> well, second question, tell us about a mistake you've made and what you learned from it, of course. And, and frankly, the more colossal, the better. We like the big mistakes. Okay. Disclosure without saying anyone's name or date or any worth if anyone could trace this back. <laughs> so I told you that my husband and I set up a small executive office, you know, when we started our practice. Mm-hmm. And first thing you do when you start a business is you go get your business cards, right? Sure. So we get our business cards printed up, got the logo, they look great. The place that we release in our executive office from, one of the nice things about an executive office, right, it has a fax machine, the coffee pot, everything's there, you know. So we have our fax number put on our business card. Seems reasonable. Okay. Gave it to a new client and immediately, like, you know, within a day or two of me giving this new client, they are a client, not a potential client, new client, a business card, they faxed me their bank statement because it had to do with, with something that was going on that we were helping them with. Yes. Okay. In a executive office, that fax machine is almost like a community fax. Yes. So they faxed it overnight. The next morning, the client contacts me and says, did you get my fax? So I go to the fax machine and there's nothing there. So what happened was another tenant in the executive office space had seen the facts and recognized the person's name. Oh, no. And they picked up the bank statement. This person was in their Sunday school class. They called them and said, at my office, I just got your bank statement. This person was a convicted felon. (gasps) So, I don't know if you get more colossal than that. Oh, my gosh. Now, wow. I immediately, at that exact moment, we stopped everything we were doing and we called the client and we contacted everyone we'd given the business card to on not sending a fax. And that same day, we went to Office Depot and we bought a fax, which we didn't even know how to hook up. We had just started our own business. <laughs> we asked the client to meet us. They came in. We explained exactly what I just said to you happened. We gave you our card. It had the facts. We didn't realize the facts was accessible to the other tenants. The tenants saw it. They picked it up. And we explained exactly what happened. And we have since been serving that client over 10 years. There you go. Okay. So the best lesson there for me early on, the minute we started our business was, well, you can't ever be careful enough, but that's just, that's just life. But to always be completely honest, no matter how bad you think it makes you look, you just tell it exactly like it is and you take precautions to ensure that's not ever going to happen again and you apologize and you just do your best that you know the client's willing to accept your apology. It was our error. And all we did was try to remedy it immediately. And again, we've had that client ever since. Wow. Well, thank you for convicted. He was a con- He was a convicted felon. Wow. They said, okay, he's in our Sunday school class, but that's not the bad part. The part was he got out of prison. He was a convicted felon. 
Well, of course, we had no idea. We knew that. We learned that about one of our tenants. Sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, you know, thank you, because there's a lot of lessons in there. I'm going to follow up with that. For anybody thinking about starting their firm, Executive Suite is a great way to go. You just have to realize that the Executive Suite owns all the phone numbers. <laughs> and, and the fax machine. And the and fax, the fax machine. machine. Yes, yes. Yes, and I don't think that people oh realize that we had just leased the space. You know, I was just so thrilled that we had a new client. You know, sure didn't even think about it when I put it on the business card. But well, a lot of people think even maybe only one person has access to that. You know, but yeah, not everyone. In the, but think about it as a CPA oh, firm, God. even one person having access to it, it's your client's information, which is confidential. Yeah, it's too much. Wow. <laughs> So if you so I guess the rule for others would be if you're thinking about starting your own firm and you're going to use an executive office, install that fax before you get your business cards, your own there fax you before you get the business cards printed. <laughs> that is good. That is good. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate it when, when our guests share a mistake that was a little painful because I, I think we all can learn from those. So thank you. Well, I like to end every podcast on a positive note. So what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, it's been said by so many people in so many different ways. Let me think. I think that the truest test of a person's character is what they do when no one is watching. So many people have said it so many different ways, but some people call it the front page test. You know, you take out the local newspaper tomorrow. You're in San Antonio there, right, Mark? Uh Uh-huh. You take out the the local paper there in San Antonio and all the facts are laid out on the front page of the local paper about something, a decision that you made or actions you took. And it's all laid out there for your community to read about. Really, how do you feel about what you did and what your decisions you made? It's really just, you know, I think they probably, they probably need to update that analogy I've read somewhere recently something similar where someone said that you should probably never do anything that you wouldn't want your kids to read about on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) So same kind of analogy. Really, it's just be the best person you can be, even when no one's looking. And even if everything was written on the front page of the newspaper, that you would feel good about the decisions you made and the actions you took. And I think that's both personally and professionally. That, that That is good advice. That is good advice. My mom's even on Facebook, and I know I wouldn't want, you know. (laughs) Go mom. But, yeah, I think that that just always holds true. Certainly in CPA profession, so many times it's the client is looking to you to help make the right decision, and you just need to just always go with what is true and right, and you're always going to be okay then. That's great advice. That, That really is. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I just wanted to say thanks for taking the time this afternoon to visit. It was nice to run into you recently, and I was glad that you followed up with me so we could visit more today. Wonderful. Well, thank you for taking the time to share. I hope it was an enjoyable experience for you as well. Thank you, Mark. Well, that was Deborah Seafeld of Seafeld & Company in Houston, Texas. I really like the advice she gave for those looking to possibly start a business, quote unquote, have a lot of money saved. That was obviously a little humorous and very, very truthful. Also, I I really do wish 
I had planned more time for the conversation about the Executive Women's Alliance. It sounds like that organization is really making a difference with girls at a very early age, which is just beautiful. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. This has been Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. If you haven't yet checked our homepage, please visit us at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. That's whereaccountantsgo.com. Also, don't forget that you can email us any career-related questions you may have at askmark, that's A-S-K-M-A-R-K, at whereaccountantsgo.com. Askmark at whereaccountantsgo.com. And we'll reply back to you with some thoughts on your situation, as well as answer them online anonymously in a later episode. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening in. There's much more to come.